0: Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and sexual abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. (laughs) Cecilia Pierce walks slowly through the Winnicunnett High School Media Center. She'd worked there as an intern for months, but this time she felt completely out of place. Nothing seemed real, thanks to the hard metal box strapped to her side and the thin wire snaking around her torso. She repeated the detective's instructions over and over in her head. When she arrived at Pam Smart's office, she took a deep breath and steadied her hands before knocking on the door. As she entered, Pam stood up and moved in for a hug. Cecilia felt herself start sweating and froze in place like a cornered animal. She was sure the older woman would feel the wire under her clothes. She awkwardly turned to the side to hide it. Miraculously, Pam didn't seem to notice anything amiss and went back to her desk, motioning for Cecilia to have a seat too. Before she could lose her nerve, Cecilia started laying her trap, just like the police had coached her. She could feel Pam trying to get in her head as they spoke, saying she was sorry Cecilia got dragged into something so tragic. But Cecilia pushed back. She was the only one who could do this. People were counting on her. Billy, Pete, JR, and the police. All she had to do was get Pam smart to slip up. She needed a confession. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from ParCast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, What manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we discussed the marriage between Pamela and Greg Smart. Though their love affair started strong, it ended in betrayal and death. 22-year-old Pam had been secretly having sex with 15-year-old Billy Flynn, but broke things off weeks before Greg's murder. Billy and his friends were arrested for the crime. This week, we'll delve into the accusations that Pam wasn't the grieving widow she seemed. The media circus and drama that unfolded during the trial was unlike any other case in American history. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
0: On June 11, 1990, police in Seabrook, New Hampshire arrested 15-year-old Billy Flynn and his friends, Pete Randall and Vance Latamy Jr., who everyone called J.R. They had testimony from another teen, Ralph Welch, that the boys had confessed to murdering Greg Smart. They also had the murder weapon, a 38 caliber pistol belonging to J.R.'s father. When Pam Smart heard Billy was arrested, she assumed it was because the authorities found out she had sex with the underage boy, committing statutory rape. She knew she should have confessed it up front, but owning up to the shame seemed like too much on top of losing her husband. She couldn't do that to her family, to Greg's family. But Pam knew how hiding the affair made her look guilty. She figured investigators would be contacting her again soon, so she hired a lawyer. It was her attorney who found out that the police were talking to 16-year-old Cecilia Pierce, another student who worked closely with Pam. Detective Daniel Pelletier took his interview with Cecilia seriously. He didn't get a chance to see much action in his small town. When he was called to the scene at the Smarts' home on May 1st, It was the only homicide that year, the year before it, too, come to think of it. After nearly two months of investigation that went nowhere, Pelletier was relieved to have had three suspects behind bars. He had evidence, but despite there being a clear connection between the suspects and the victim, he still didn't have a clear motive. Until Cecilia Pierce turned up with the final piece of the puzzle. Cecilia sat with her hands in her lap in the dim interrogation room. She couldn't stand to stare into the camera trained on her or the eyes of the detectives. As they peppered her with questions, her heart pounded. She picked at her fingernails to avoid looking around. The officers first asked what kind of relationship Cecilia had with Pam. She said they were really close. Pam was practically like a big sister. When they asked about Pam and Billy, Cecilia was honest. She told the detectives they were having an affair. Then they wanted to know if she was positive. She definitely was. She'd walked in on them once, seen them having sex with her own eyes. Though she'd previously denied it, this time Cecilia told detectives that Pam had been front and center in planning Greg's murder. Though Billy and the other boys still refused to talk, Cecilia Pierce's testimony gave investigators everything they needed to arrest Pam. When the interview was over, Detective Pelletier processed the new revelations. Both Cecilia and Ralph Welch could have been lying in a misguided attempt to help their friends. Usually, no one cared at all about what Cecilia had to say. She seemed to enjoy having the police listen to her. But the more the detective thought about it, the clearer it became. Pam had lied to him on two counts that he knew of. She seemed far too eager to speak to the press. He couldn't remember if he'd ever seen her cry. The pieces were falling into place, and it looked like Pam Smart used teenagers to murder her husband. Pelletier started to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but he didn't just want to arrest Pam. A detective's job was to gather enough evidence to get a conviction in court. Desperate to build a stronger case, he asked Cecilia if she would be willing to help them out some more. Since the two of them were so close, Cecilia might have been able to convince Pam to confess. They needed her to get it on tape. Cecilia agreed. At first, law enforcement tried the less risky option, recording a phone call. In Detective Pelletier's experience, you could never be sure what a suspect might do if they discovered they were being recorded. Since Cecilia was just 16, he didn't want to put her in unnecessary danger. The conversation, however, didn't prove fruitful. Pam sounded paranoid and dodged all of Cecilia's questions. The next step was to try to get Pam to talk in person. On July 12, 1990, police sent Cecilia to Pam's office wearing a wire. She had been thoroughly coached on how to approach Pam and get her to reveal what the police needed. Unfortunately, the technology at their disposal was not state of the art. The equipment that was supposed to allow police to listen in on the conversation live failed. They had to wait until Cecilia returned with the recording, which turned out to be pretty poor quality. Though it was hard to hear much on the tape, Detective Pelletier caught something that made it all worth it. At one point during the talk, Pam seemed to encourage Cecilia to lie to the police. She informed Cecilia that if she told the truth, she would, quote, Send Bill, Pete, JR, and me in the slammer for the rest of our entire life. Although a pretty vague statement on its own, it was as close to a confession as they were going to get. To Detective Pelletier, it was damning evidence. On August 1st, detectives arrested Pam Smart at Winnicunit High. We have good news and bad news, Pelletier reportedly told her. The good news is, we solved the murder of your husband. The bad news is, you're under arrest. Pam didn't say anything once the handcuffs were on. She was in a daze. Two weeks later, she was indicted on the charge of accomplice to first-degree murder. Local media had already been covering the case around the clock, But after Pam was arrested, the story exploded. Bill Spencer, a reporter with the local TV station WMUR, had interviewed Pam several times during the investigation. He became the unofficial point person for national media outlets who wanted details about the case. It was a career-making moment for the up-and-coming journalist. Spencer created the lens through which the world saw the story. Before I continue, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to the American Psychological Association, people tend to look for information that supports rather than refutes their preconceptions. Known as confirmation bias, this inclination often causes people to misinterpret evidence to confirm their existing beliefs. It's a very human tendency, and one that investigative journalists need to be wary of as they report their findings. Spencer had previously found Pam's actions suspicious, and it's possible he let this assumption color the facts as he came across them. One of his many national media appearances was on the popular daytime talk show, Geraldo, hosted by Geraldo Rivera. Spencer appeared as part of a panel of people discussing Pam's story, including her mother, Linda Wogis Spencer discussed the tapes from Cecilia's Wire, claiming that Pam said many incriminating things during that conversation. When Linda interrupted his monologue to ask if he'd actually heard the tape himself, Spencer admitted he had not. It became hard for anyone to escape the media circus, even reporters without preconceptions would have found it hard to distance themselves from the hype. The story had all the elements that made a news item compelling, sex, rock and roll, and murder. A young, pretty teacher had seduced and manipulated a student to commit murder for her. It sounded like something out of a soap opera. Though she was meant to serve in a mentorship role at the high school, to characterize Pam as a teacher was misleading, but that kind of nuance didn't fit into sound bites. Besides, it was too good to pass up the fact that her favorite band, Van Halen, had a hit song literally called Hot For Teacher. The entire time the case against Pam was being built by police and the media, Billy and the boys languished back in the local prison, Billy knew they were in serious trouble. He was the one who'd convinced his friends to help murder Greg Smart. Now, they were definitely going to jail. It was just a matter of how long. Because they were minors, Billy hoped they'd only spend a few years in juvenile hall. He thought it would show Pam how serious he was about being with her. All they had to do was keep their mouths shut. JR, as usual, was easy to convince. Billy counted on his puppy dog nature. If any of them had a reason to crack, it was JR, since he just waited in the car while Greg was murdered. Pete, on the other hand, was guaranteed to be in just as much trouble as Billy if he talked. The threat of mutually assured destruction held them all together. Their plan to wait it out might have worked, except that the New Hampshire attorney general's office had just hired a veteran prosecutor from Brooklyn. He wasn't perturbed by the media coverage. He'd interacted with the press plenty in New York. He also wasn't afraid to get tough with the suspects. Since the crime they were charged with was so serious, he thought he could convince the court to try them as adults. He turned out to be right. After a few months of hearings, the boys were all certified as adult defendants. They now face the possibility of being sentenced to 40 years to life in prison and possibly even the death penalty. Billy was officially scared. A couple years in juvie was one thing, but he couldn't let his friends get put away forever. Together, the boys decided to start talking. When we return, Billy turns on Pam.
1: Hi, it's Carter from Parcast Network. The Vatican is one of the most recognizable religious sites in the world, but it's also a powerful institution, its unique history full of secrecy. This Easter, my show Conspiracy Theories looks deep into the Church's past to uncover how it became what it is today. Starting April 5th, our new four-part mini-series, Mysteries of the Vatican, dives in to examine some of the most prominent conspiracy theories surrounding this mysterious organization. From the Church's sordid rise to power, to prophetic visions, and even assassination attempts. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories, to hear Mysteries of the Vatican. New episodes air every Monday and Wednesday, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Now, back to the story. Teenagers Billy Flynn, J.R. Latamy, and Pete Randall were arrested for murdering Greg Smart in June 1990. The boys spent months in the county jail, refusing to answer any questions. Once the prosecutor certified them to be tried as adults, however, they changed their tune. On January 23, 1991, the Seabrook Police Department finally interviewed their suspects. Suddenly, Billy, Pete, and JR were all open books. Investigators already had a general idea of what happened the night of the murder. What they needed from the teens was more information about how Pam had planned the whole thing. The boys were happy to deliver. The prosecutor offered them a plea deal in exchange for them agreeing to testify against Pam in court. On January 28th, all three of them pleaded guilty to second degree murder to avoid life in prison. When Pam heard the news, she felt a prickle of worry. Up until then, she was sure things would get sorted out in court. But after the plea deal was announced, it became clear there was only one target of the investigation. Even though she hadn't been the one to pull the trigger, she was getting blamed and possibly convicted for her husband's murder. The court of public opinion had already handed down their verdict. Someone had given the press photos of Pam posing suggestively in a white bikini, which she'd used to enter a modeling contest. Television and newspaper reports alleged she had asked Billy to develop the film, telling him to keep whatever he wanted. Pam's public image as a seductive Black widow solidified. At the same time, Billy, J.R., and Pete were made out to be corrupted little boys, despite the fact that the state wanted to try them as adults until they agreed to cooperate. Local journalist Bill Spencer, after an impressive run of appearances on the popular talk shows of the day, produced a movie-length special report titled The Anatomy of a Murder. It laid out his version of events and interviewed Cecilia Pierce, the only witness for the prosecution not already behind bars. Cecilia managed to sell the rights to her story to a production company for $100,000. Soon enough, the upcoming trial was all anyone could talk about. In typical coverage of a murder, the public had to wait until the proceedings ended to find out what happened. But in the case of Pam Smart, Spencer had been able to dig up all the information he deemed relevant beforehand. The anatomy of a murder aired two days before jury selection began. Because the case garnered an unbelievable level of media coverage before it had even gotten to court, Pam's defense attorney tried to relocate the proceedings. According to the defense, it would be nearly impossible to find 12 people in Derry, New Hampshire, who hadn't already been soaked in the media's version of the story. Judge Douglas Gray, who would not have remained the presiding judge if the trial were moved, denied the motion. He was not going to lose out on the opportunity, which was probably why the next pretrial petition that came across Judge Gray's desk was more successful. WMUR, Bill Spencer Station, wanted permission to broadcast the whole thing live, which had never been done in American history. Judge Gray granted the request. The stage was set for an unprecedented event. On the first day of the trial, March 4, 1991, Pam was escorted to the courthouse. Handcuffed, but still put together with her hair and makeup done nicely, she stared straight ahead as the press went wild. Inside the tiny courtroom, multiple TV cameras were set up to capture the proceedings from every angle. Around the country, all eyes were on 23-year-old Pam Smart. The day began with the prosecution's argument, which was essentially the same story that had been plastered on TV for weeks. Pam had allegedly seduced Billy Flynn into killing her husband. The evidence consisted of the tapes from Cecilia's Wire and the testimonies of the three boys who committed the crime. On the stand, one of the teens, J.R. Latamy, confessed that he was responsible for securing the gun and a getaway vehicle. On the day of the murder, his grandmother forgot to leave him her car, so they had to call Pam for a ride to pick it up. They refined the plan for Greg's murder on the way. JR said Pete wanted to use a knife because it would be quieter, but Pam nixed that idea to avoid making a mess on her white furniture. J.R. described Pam as jumpy during the trip. The cross-examination of J.R. was the first opportunity the defense attorney had to poke holes in the prosecution's story. He started by emphasizing that J.R. and Billy had bunked together ever since their arrests, with Pete Randall staying a cell or two over. For months, the boys had been together. The defense argued this fact meant the teens had plenty of time to get their story straight and save themselves by throwing Pam under the bus. During his turn to testify, Pete Randall told the courtroom that Pam had rejected the idea of a divorce because she worried she'd lose her belongings and dog. He then dispassionately described the way he held a knife to Greg's throat and demanded his wedding ring. Greg refused to give it to him because he said, my wife will kill me. When asked why he agreed to the murder at all, Pete said he'd always wondered what it would be like to kill someone. Next on the stand was the prosecution's star witness, Billy Flynn. He was second only to Pam as a topic of public interest, It was an especially exciting bit of theater that the prosecution called him to testify on his 17th birthday. The prosecutor had Billy start by discussing his relationship with Pam. According to Billy, Cecilia gave him a note from Pam sometime in February, 1990, that claimed she had feelings for him. He had flirted with her openly before that, but never thought she'd be interested in him. According to Billy, one day while working on a project together, Pam finally asked, are you ever going to kiss me? When he said, yeah, she replied, well, do I have to come over there and rape you? It was their first kiss. Billy then talked about watching the film Nine and a Half Weeks with Pam and Cecilia He said Pam wanted Billy to see it because there was a scene she wanted to reenact with him involving ice cubes. He testified that after the movie, that's exactly what they did. It was his first time having sex. When the prosecutor questioned Billy about the night he killed Greg Smart, the boy broke down. Tearfully, he walked the courtroom through everything as it happened. Pam told them she'd leave the doors to the basement open so they could get in. She asked them to make it look like a burglary. They were even allowed to take anything they wanted. She also warned them not to hurt the dog. They were ordered to put it in the basement so it wouldn't be traumatized. Billy continued crying as he described jumping Greg at the door. He and Pete overpowered the man easily. When they had Greg on his knees, Billy took out the gun and held it to the back of his head. On the stand, Billy was so emotional, the lawyer had to prod him along. He said he stood over Greg for what felt like 100 years. Then he whispered, God forgive me and pulled the trigger. When asked why he did it, Billy claimed he did what he had to do to be with Pam. He said, I had a brain, but I was in love. Love can be as potent as any drug. Clinical psychologist and relationship expert, Carla Manley wrote that being without your partner can increase feelings of depression, stress, and anxiety. In fact, as the feel-good hormones decrease and stress hormones rise, a person's behavior can turn erratic or even aggressive. It was possible that Pam used this intense neurochemistry to her advantage. Sex is the fastest way to get a boost of oxytocin, known as the bonding hormone for the role it plays in reinforcing our feelings. Recent studies on the use of ecstasy have shown that too much oxytocin can lead to dissociation from reality and reckless behavior. The media were transfixed by Billy's teary-eyed testimony. A headline in the Chicago Tribune published on March 13, 1991 read, sobbing teenager, I killed for love. It made quite the impression in the courtroom too, though not everyone bought the performance. One of the female jurors kept an audio diary during the proceedings. Her identity has been kept anonymous, so we'll refer to her as Juror 13. Her tapes were used as part of the 2014 HBO documentary, Captivated, The Trials of Pamela Smart. On the day Billy testified, Juror 13 said she wasn't moved by his tears. She felt the teens were scapegoating Pam to get out of spending life in prison. But it wasn't just killers who were testifying. The prosecution's next witness, Cecilia Pierce, mostly corroborated what the boys had said. In the eyes of the defense attorney, however, she had something to gain by testifying too. On the stand, she confessed that she'd told Billy her coworker kept a gun inside their car. Billy broke into the vehicle, but never found the weapon. Attempting to procure a firearm made Cecilia an accomplice. Yet she was the only one not in a jail cell because of her cooperation with investigators. According to the defense, Cecilia had serious reason to play along with the prosecution's conspiracy. After her cross-examination, Detective Pelletier introduced the recordings obtained from Cecilia's wire. As the tapes played in court, the jury heard Pam telling Cecilia that if she talked to the police, they were all going to jail. Pam also mentioned that JR was the one most likely to turn against Billy and Pete. But, Pam told Cecilia, she wasn't worried because no one would believe a 16-year-old over a professional woman like herself. Though the tapes weren't exactly a confession, Pam sounded like she knew a lot, possibly everything about the murder. It was the one piece of evidence that wasn't hearsay, just Pam's own words. With that, the prosecution rested their case. The defense clearly had an uphill battle ahead of them. Pam's character was tarnished by the fact that she had committed statutory rape. Being guilty of one crime made it easier for the public and more importantly, the jury to believe she also planned the murder. Pam prepared to take the stand and tell her side of the story. When we return, Pam speaks.
1: This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax, now you can use gift mode on Etsy. gift mode has you covered need to find the perfect gift don't panic try gift mode on etsy now this episode is brought to you by amazon prime you know amazon prime is not just a shipping subscription right it's got everything including streaming tv and movies on prime video and of course prime's fast free shipping go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things whatever you're into it's on prime visit amazon.com prime to get more out of whatever you're into
0: Now, back to the story. In March, 1991, the trial of 23-year-old Pamela Smart finally began after months of speculation. The details of the case were like catnip for the media. Once the prosecution presented their arguments, the picture only got worse for Pam. She tried her best to focus on the trial but it was difficult to concentrate with so many cameras around. The hallway to and from the courtroom lit up like a red carpet each time she walked by. Every photo showed her with her face blank, handcuffed and escorted by large guards. Her expression could have been interpreted a number of ways, bewildered, stunned, or even stoic. But the media went with cold and unfeeling, She was dubbed an ice princess. In the footage of her perp walk, local reporter, Bill Spencer, thought her eyes looked dark and lifeless, like those of a shark. Spencer conducted a slew of man-on-the-street style interviews to gauge how the town felt about Pam. Most believed her to be unquestionably guilty no one could see how her lawyers could possibly be able to prove otherwise, though that wasn't technically the defense's job. It was the public's dogged expectation. In an attempt to rehabilitate Pam's character, the defense called her best friend, Sonia Fortin, to the stand. Sonia's stories about Pam flew in the face of the impression the media portrayed. Pam wasn't an ice princess. According to Sonia, She loved Greg more than anything. Sonia told the court how, on the night of the wake, Pam was so overcome with grief, she draped herself over the casket, sobbing. She also claimed that in the days and weeks following the murder, Pam struggled with intense emotions, not always thinking clearly or acting rationally. But there was one thing no amount of character witness could make up for. Pam's statutory rape of 15-year-old Billy Flynn. Sonia was asked when Pam finally told her the truth about Billy. It was all over when she admitted that Pam only let her know about a month before the trial. The prosecution hammered home the fact that Pam was able to lie to her supposed best friend for months. It was possible no one actually knew the real Pam Smart the defense fired back by relying on forensic evidence. According to an expert, the bullet that killed Greg Smart told a very different story than Billy Flynn and his friends. The entrance wound was high up on the left side of Greg's skull, five inches above his left ear. It traveled toward the back of his head at a 45 degree angle before exiting the skull. Such a trajectory would have been impossible if the shooter was standing behind the victim. Billy and Pete had both claimed that Pete was in front of Greg and that Billy shot him from behind. The forensics didn't support that story. It was much more likely that a person standing in front of Greg Smart had been the one to execute him. The forensic analysis succeeded in poking a hole in the prosecution's theory. Next up, it was Pam's turn. Typically, defendants in criminal cases don't take the stand, but Pam insisted on telling her side of the story. She started by saying that she knew what she'd done to Billy was wrong, but not everything happened as he claimed. On the night they first had sex, for instance, She admitted they had watched the movie nine and a half weeks, but there was absolutely no reenactment. Pam alleged that Billy had trouble telling the difference between reality and fantasy. She also claimed that Billy acted on his own to carry out the murder because he saw Greg as an obstacle to being with her. She broke things off with Billy at the end of April. According to Pam, Billy was distraught when she ended it even threatening to die by suicide if they couldn't be together. When the prosecution asked Pam why she hadn't told the police about Billy, she explained that she didn't initially believe he was to blame for Greg's murder. But that didn't explain the recordings from Cecilia's Wire. Pam acknowledged that they sounded bad. However, She insisted she was only trying to get information out of Cecilia because the police weren't talking to her at the time. Sleep deprived, desperate for information and grieving, Pam thought she'd play detective herself. Grief, much like love, can be a powerful force of change in the brain and body. According to Dr. Katherine Burnett, an assistant professor and mental health researcher at Tulane University, grief affects the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex. It can throw off the brain's ability to regulate mood and emotions, as well as impair judgment. A 2009 article on grief and bereavement identified anguish, regret, anxiety, and depersonalization as common emotional states reported by those experiencing loss. Depersonalization is the feeling of being outside of one's body, like one's surroundings aren't real. Pam could have been out of her mind with grief during these conversations. After all. Her lawyers had warned Pam beforehand that Cecilia was likely to be reporting everything she said to the police, yet Pam still claimed she pretended to know more than she did to get Cecilia on her side. She even let Greg's best friend in on this plan before she talked to Cecilia. He told the court that he warned her not to go through with it. Pam's testimony went on for three full days, during which time the media wrote stories about how composed she seemed. Unlike Billy, who couldn't contain his emotions, the Ice Princess sat on the stand as if she were discussing her taxes, rather than the brutal murder of her husband. The articles could have had an effect on the jury, as they had never been sequestered. Amid the largest publicity storm to ever surround a court proceeding, Judge Gray thought it was enough to simply advise them to avoid all news related to the case. The jury deliberated for about three days before returning with the verdict. A few believed the prosecution had improved proved Pam's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, but in the end, they were the minority. Pam was found guilty on all charges, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, accomplice to first-degree murder, and attempted witness tampering. Judge Gray had told the packed courtroom that there would be no outbursts or cause for celebration, no matter the verdict. Even still, Greg's parents, Bill and Judy Smart, couldn't help but cry out in relief when it was read. For her part, Pam stood still as ever. This time, shocked was the only way to describe her demeanor. Her life as she knew it was shattered. The judge almost gleefully delivered the automatic sentence of life in prison without possibility of parole. Bill Spencer said he'd never heard the decision delivered in such a way by any judge, with the phrasing so particular and powerful. As Pam was led away, Judge Gray reportedly told the courtroom he wanted Clint Eastwood to play him in the movie about the case. Even some of the jurors were shocked by the severity of the sentence. Juror 13 said that if she had known life without parole was the only possible outcome— she would have fought harder to hang the jury. Outside the courthouse, journalists asked Pam's aunt if she believed it had been a fair trial. The woman shook her head sadly and said, the media didn't even seem to care to believe she might be innocent. The circus didn't end even after the verdict. One of the only interviews Billy gave regarding the case, the then 18-year-old told Diane Sawyer only one question still haunted him. He wanted to know if Pam had ever really loved him, because if she hadn't, then everything he'd done was for nothing. He likely won't ever get a definitive answer. By 2015, Billy Flynn, Pete Randall, and J.R. Latamy were all freed from prison. Billy and Pete were released early for good behavior, each serving 25 years. For her part, Pam still maintains her innocence, but has admitted her involvement with Billy ultimately made her responsible for what happened to Greg. She said that she made plenty of mistakes, but deliberately planning to murder her husband was not one of them. At this point, however, she has exhausted her appeal options. None of them managed to overturn her conviction or reduce her sentence. In 2019, she sent a request to New Hampshire's governor, Chris Sununu, for a hearing on parole consideration. It was rejected. She plans to send another request in 2021. Until then, she resides at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women in New York. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs.